0: Welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar.
1: The podcast where we mix a sometimes weird but always delicious cocktail of theology, philosophy, and spirituality.
0: So I googled creation versus evolution, and 278 million results came up. That's a lot of results. That's a lot of debates and conversations about creation and evolution. And friends, we are excited to add another one, a 278 and 1 million. I don't know if that's even the right (laughs) way you say that, but we're going to do it. We're going to add to the 278 million conversations. And we're talking today about creation and evolution, how they work. Do they work together? All that business. It's going to be fun. Exciting.
2: Elliot, yeah, I got the drinks today. All right, let's do this. Tell us about it. So I picked this up because I, I think I had it uh, with a friend and, and enjoyed it, uh, but maybe this isn't the same one. So either it's either it's really good or maybe this is just, a, yeah, this might be really bad too. We'll <laughs> see. This is this is Driftless Glen, uh, which is a Wisconsin-made bourbon, which. Uh, hmm. It isn't real common or possible?
1: So, do you know what part uh, of so Wisconsin
2: Baraboo, Baraboo? So this is uh, the, the glaciers kind of push through Wisconsin. They flatten most of the state, and and Baraboo is the part where it all wrinkled up. And, <laughs> and, and so there's there's a lot going on. And, well, and they now they they you don't really believe that
1: Elliot, do you? That uh, <laughs> millions of years ago glaciers uh, it,
2: were it, in it, Wisconsin? There was a no 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 no. There, this was there was a flood. There was a flood. <laughs> see. <laughs> Oh, boy. I didn't read anything about glaciers in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) It begins. So this this is a bourbon. Uh, This is uh, 48% alcohol, so it's 96 proof. Color is really dark, Mm -hmm. really, really oaky. Mm. Really inoffensive on the nose.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's not super outstanding nose or complex, but good.
1: Yeah, there's... Not a lot of complexity, but tasty. It has all I the like standard uh, flavor notes that you want in a bourbon. Plenty of it's wood. It's kind of a
2: uh, it's a it's a burnt wood for me. It's mm-hmm. like there's Kelsey. a there's a, a yeah almost a charcoaly type of yeah. I like that. And <laughs> last time I chewed on some charcoal, I remember this flavor right.
0: emerging. No, yeah, I mean, <laughs> distillers will. Vary their toast on the inside of the barrel, so that makes sense. It is very oaky. I gotta take another sip. Yeah, it's got some sweetness on the back of the tongue. A little bit new. It's got some good spice to it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: yeah, I was trying to. It's not. It's not like black pepper though, either. It's a uh,
0: no, but close. I would say. I mean, it's just. It's almost like effervescent on the tongue after it goes down,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that's where you feel the spice. That's good. Excuse me. I don't love it. But I like it, and it's fun that it's local.
1: Yeah, I put a little bit of water in it, and it seemed to help.
2: Okay, yeah, yep. to, I like that. Actually, the, the bottle is probably my favorite part. It's this kind of squat, squared bottle, like really thick glass, and then on either side there's a the fingerprint of of the founder is what do you call it, mm-hmm. etched I don't know, or embossed or something? It's like in the glass. It's oh, really, that's cool. Really, really pretty. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Well, support
0: Baraboo yeah. Distilleries and. Purchase some Driftless Glen. It's tasty. Thank you, Elliot.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing. Healthy pour, too. Appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was a kid, I grew up in rural Kentucky, and everybody in rural Kentucky is a creationist. I probably knew two or three people as a kid that weren't creationists, but I didn't know they weren't <laughs> until, mm-hmm. until later. Uh, they hadn't there come as, out. Yeah, well, you know, be careful with that language. But, I mean, there, honestly, there is something like that kind of experience around this issue in the rural South. Uh, if, you ha- if you have doubts about creationism, you keep them to yourself. If you want to be mm-hmm. accepted in uh, the evangelical church community or sometimes even by your family, uh, you keep those doubts to yourself. And in Kentucky, there's actually a huge creationist presence because of an organization called Answers in Genesis. And they, for whatever reason, chose... Actually, I know the reason. Tax breaks were the reason. They chose Kentucky <laughs> for their ARC encounter, is what they call it. So, Good old Christian capitalists. Yeah, yeah, they built a life-size replica, a life-size based on these very specific dimensions of the Ark that you get in Genesis. So they built a life-size replica and and a whole park to go along with it so you can go and tour this thing. I haven't done so, but complete with uh, animatronic dinosaurs and humans and long, detailed explanations of how everything fit on the Ark and how humans and dinosaurs lived at the same time and how that all worked out. (laughs) I I don't mean to laugh. They have gone to great, astonishing lengths to make it all make sense and to answer all the skeptics. Uh, And this is the environment I grew up in. And then I went to college, and it took one, no, not even one, it took half of one biology course (laughs) to completely dismantle uh, that view.
0: Really? It was that easily dismantled? So, so
1: easily. Uh, Now, it helped that that my uh, biology professor had written a book uh, on evolution specifically, and was well acquainted with the creationist arguments, and so took explicitly took time in his lectures to rebut some of them. So that was probably a part of it.
0: Like a
2: good Catholic yeah. school probably should. No, this
1: was a, a liberal arts state school.
0: Oh,
2: wasn't yeah. it? No. Yeah, okay. these are the ones they warned us about. Yeah,
1: for sure. But he was very nice about <laughs> it. I mean, he wasn't mean or or vindictive or anything like that. So that helped. Um, and then just talking about it with some thoughtful friends and. And so I remember very specifically, it raised all these questions in my mind, and I thought, man, I need to get to the bottom of this. Because if you listen to the creationist side of things, there's so much importance placed on this topic. If you if you give up the specific view of creation, then you give up the whole thing. You might as well, you know, if we call this part into question, well, what about Absolutely. the rest of it? Jesus, all of it goes away. And so I was kind of struggling with that for a little while, and so I remember I... I asked my creationist friends, which included my pastor at the time, for a reading list. I said, give me the best books that you know that argue for the creationist point of view. And then I emailed two or three professors in the biology department. And I said, give me your best books on evolution. And if you know anything specifically about evolution and creation, give me your best books on those. And I remember sitting in my room in college with two stacks of books on either side of me. I had this beanbag chair that I would sit in to read and i had one stack on my right side of creationist books and one stack on my left side of evolutionist books and i would read those all summer long
0: what a eager beaver holy moly i mean it was important
1: <laughs> to me and i remember i had a roommate at the time who very well meaning pulled me aside one day as i was sitting there reading through my evolutionist books and gave me a quote word from the lord that oh, i love that that this was a dangerous path and that i needed to yeah repent and stop. That, that was the culture I grew up in. It's, the, it's one of a handful of words from the Lord that I got in that time frame. And uh, it's interesting that one of them was about <laughs> this issue, what to believe about evolution. Yeah. So this has been on my radar for a large part of my, my Christian life, but it hasn't been important to me for a long time. But because of how important it was at one point, I think it's an important issue that we need to, to address. Yeah. Every time you and I do a Q and A at our church, this comes up. Mm-hmm. People are still grappling with it for sure.
0: Absolutely, and I wouldn't say, you know, it's creation or evolution. I would, I would guess that all of us believe in creation that God created the world. It's the method at which that happened and the when that happened and how that happened. Yeah. But I would say probably I would I would guess Kyle that you agree that if you believe in evolution you believe that God set in motion the process of evolution for it to in and, and that's how he created the world.
1: Yeah, so I think what um what my sincere Christian friends were worried about is that I would reject the idea that God had anything to do with nature. That somehow it all happened, and there was no explanation for it, and isn't that just atheism? Um, but if you read the Nicene Creed, for example, you don't see anything in there about how God did anything. Uh, that he created, the world is in there, and that's a doctrine that all Christians hold. If you're not an atheist, if you're a theist of any kind, you think God had something to do with nature. He's responsible for it in some way. But the methods, well, that's a different question.
0: Right. Yeah, In s- so I mean, it was a huge part of your journey and your process in being able to reconcile the science with what, you've, what you grew up with, what you were given. And for me, as a pastor, this is a very constant question. This is a very regular question of maybe people coming out of fundamentalism in a young Earth, you know, uh, worldview, and being having that challenged, or maybe people more and more people basically are just can't buy. And think young Earth creationism is silliness, and they they pick up this little tension between Christianity and science, and that's my my issue. That's where I get a little, I, I feel tension in there. Is that there is no need for tension between Christianity and the science scientific community. The reason that it's there is because we Christians have put it there. We've introduced this hostility. We've we've become so insecure probably because of the Enlightenment. And we live in a post-Enlightenment world where we feel like we have to have an answer for everything. If science comes with a different answer, it's dangerous, yeah. right? And that insecurity is so unhelpful. And I would say younger people particularly are so done with that narrative. There, yeah. there, are some, there are many people who have tossed the whole dang thing, done the opposite of what the Christians say. They've tossed the whole dang thing because if you believe that the earth is really 10,000 years old or whatever they say— that is a farce and I can't believe it. I, I just can't do it. I know my 11-year-old son who's very into science, dreams of being a scientist. If I were to tell him that the earth is 10,000 years old, he'd think I'm crazy. And he's just in fifth grade, yeah. right? Like he, I think we have a whole large group of people and a growing group of people who that just doesn't sit well with. They can't deal with it. They can't, they can't swallow it. And we need to, need to actually talk about this because I don't think it's in our Bible, yeah. I don't think that's what so Genesis one we're is about.
1: Our cards a little bit here, but if if you don't think this is a, a necessary tension, why do you think it persists? Why is this still an issue for so many Christians?
0: Well, I think we've many Christians have been groomed and grown and taught in this world that that is insecure, that says evolution in textbooks and science books is of the devil and we need to do what we can to get intelligent design in, in, in science books. Right. So we've grown up with this combative worldview and we put so much stock into this argument that we've made it so that if we, if you take that away, it's everything goes away and everything slides away, which is a really, I'm just not comfortable with that argument that our interpretation of this ancient text is actually what everything rests upon,
1: yeah, yeah, and we're we're definitely going to talk more about that kind of literal approach to things, um, so maybe it's best because I know some listeners are wondering, so maybe it's best if we just lay out right at the beginning what our current views are, just just put our cards on the table, uh, be transparent so people know where we're headed here, so what would you say uh, is your current view about this issue, Randy, and has it changed for you, and if so, in what ways
0: oh yeah, absolutely, it's changed i definitely grew up in a young earth creationist home always held that went to a lutheran school for the most part so i had that affirmed i didn't read the public school stuff similar to you in kentucky and then went to university and i kind of thought it was all i was very skeptical of the evolution and biology classes i was not like you i didn't i didn't swallow it but yet i was uncomfortable with it and then in college ministry i had a couple of friends who believed in evolution and that really intrigued me, and what it did to me it didn't actually introduce this crisis. it actually said, "Oh that's interesting that christianity i, I can have- like I know this guy's a christian he's beaut- he's a wonderful man, and he believes in evolution that's that's kind of cool like first of all, that's gutsy of him, I remember thinking that, and then second of all, interesting, so that was my gateway into just allowing myself even to imagine a worldview that doesn't involve a young earth creationism and then i would go and morph and say oh i believe in microevolution not macroevolution you know that's you can't deny what what does that mean microevolution being that of course things change slowly over time that's like christians can allow that into their creationist worldview macroevolution that it's you know everyone came from a species similar to a monkey that's a bunch of hogwash, you know? And then yeah. eventually it just... But, but of course, as as we all know, microevolution
1: is the gateway drug to macroevolution.
0: <laughs> exactly. It was for me. So it was halfway in like micro to macroevolution, but it was also in, I started to understand the Bible a little bit more in a critical fashion and not critical in um, critiquing it, but actually under, we started understanding the Bible as an ancient text that an ancient people group who thought way differently than I do and would have read this way differently than I did and and filter it way differently than I do, that was the thing that put me over the edge was actually let's think about what the original listeners, the original audience, the people who the, this text was talking to, how they would have taken it. And that really just kind of said, okay, this is not what I thought it was. And so now I'm basically... Th- if you ask me what I believe about the origin of the universe, I would say I believe the Big Bang was an explosion of divine love that set into events this beautiful process of the love of God being shared and in, in creating this universe and the cosmos and in all things out of nothing. And all things that exist exist because God created them because He wanted them to, to be created. But that, that process happened through what we know as evolution yeah what about you Kyle
1: uh so for my own part I mean I, I would happily describe myself as an evolutionist uh, much happier with that language now than I am with any kind of creationist label in fact I, I prefer not to add the creationist label at all if I can help it uh, just because it has so much baggage it, it brings so many connotations Along with it, and there's so many different kinds of creationists, and everybody's wondering which kind you are. If you include that that term, we'll talk about that in a minute. So, for for my part, I'm just happy saying, you look, I, I accept the the consensus, the overwhelming consensus of the scientific experts on this issue, for the last 150 years. There's no reason to question it, as far as I can tell. All the all the reasons to question it come from the Bible. And in my view, none of those are good reasons anymore. And we're, we're definitely going to dive into that. So I prefer to just avoid the label creationist altogether uh, and just say that I accept, accept the theory and see no tension whatsoever between that and my Christianity. But it took me a long time to get to that place, several years. And I, I like you, I, I went through stages, right? Uh, for a while, I was an old earth creationist because mm-hmm. I realized, well, phew, man, the 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 physical and geological evidence, and physical, by physical I mean the evidence from physics and astrophysics and such. It's just overwhelming. I mean, the earth is obviously billions of years old, but I need to hold on to the creationist thing. I need I need the Bible to be accurately describing nature, and so there's all sorts of interpretive tricks and exegetical tricks that you can do to to make Genesis fit an old earth model, and so for a while I was an old earth creationist, and then I was a, a different kind of creationist for a while, and Eventually you just get tired. You get tired of jumping through the hoops and you say, Well, maybe I'm trying to make the Bible be something it's not. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where I ended up. Yeah.
0: And God bless you. I can't do it. I love the the word creationist (laughs) way too much and the idea of God creating the universe in love is just too intoxicating for me to get. So there's a
1: there's a group of people that nowadays call themselves evolutionary creationists, and their view is probably almost indistinguishable from my view. Yeah, I'm done with that. I just don't, I don't like the label. <laughs> and and part of it, and we'll get to this later, part of it is uh, I, I tend to think that science and religion should be kept apart, but we, we can talk more about that. Not, not entirely, but there's a there's an important sense in which they should be kept apart. And so that's kind of why I don't like the label so much.
0: All right, well, Kyle, can you? you you're you're way more well versed, you little eager beaver, with your stacks of books on each side of you. That's so cute. Um, but thank, praise the Lord, you did it. Maybe that was divine providence. I'm not a Calvinist, but maybe the Lord was like, "You're going to need this for that podcast that you do, you know, in 15 years." <laughs> oh, that was for us. Exactly, exactly. So, um, go into the science of it a little bit, Kyle.
1: Yeah. Now I should say I'm definitely not a scientist. I'm certainly no biologist and. Uh, There's so many volumes, excellent volumes on this, and at the end we're going to recommend some. So, but a good philosopher,
0: a good philosopher does think he's an expert at everything, right or she?
1: Well, uh, (laughs) can I just say you're 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 an expert about (laughs) abstract things, you're good at putting together a whole picture. But the minutia, that's that's somebody else's job.
2: It's so refreshing to hear somebody acknowledge that they're not a scientist. Can you say that? (laughs) (laughs) Especially these days, so rare.
1: Yeah. So, here's my non-expert perspective on what evolution is, basically. This is the 40,000-foot view. Basically, when Darwin came along, uh, he was not the first to think up evolution. So, The idea that humans developed, that nature itself developed over a really long process of piecemeal steps is a very old idea. It goes all the way back to ancient Greece. But Darwin was the first to be able to confirm it with experiment and really flesh out the theory and also propose a mechanism for how it happened. So evolution in the Darwin sense is very simply all living things have a common ancestor, which means If we were to get in a time machine and just sort of trace their development back to the beginning, we would find the same beginning for everything that is alive. So anything that's currently living on the earth started in one place. That happened a very long time ago, about 4 billion years ago. And here was Darwin's unique proposal. He said, I can tell you how that happened. I can explain how it happened in a way that explains why everything looks like it was designed for a purpose, but actually was natural. Natural meaning it didn't need to be guided to be that way. It didn't need anyone to reach into the system and make it that way. It happened on its own. And that is the theory of natural selection. So that's what Darwin contributed. That's why he's famous. Uh, And that was very controversial for a while, but eventually it won over (laughs) pretty much all the scientists. Uh, And today, all the biologists, as I understand it, will recognize that some, some version of natural selection still has a huge role to play evolutionary theory, but we also have to be honest about the fact that biology has left Darwin behind a long, long time ago. So one thing I realized when I was reading those two stacks of books is that the creationists were often uh, objecting to a version of evolution that had been given up decades before. They were poking holes in specific arguments of Darwin when modern-day evolutionists had recognized those problems and then solved them a long, long time ago. So Just like any other scientific theory, it progresses in stages and there's falsification and you do experiments and you find more evidence. In this case, you find more fossils and then you develop genetics and everything changes. So while all evolutionists today, all evolutionary biologists today would say, yeah, Darwin was super important and really right about a lot of stuff, he also missed a lot of stuff. So the the average person's understanding, the average Christian's understanding of evolution is usually pretty weak. Uh, so you you see you know claims like well do you really believe that humans came from monkeys isn't that stupid don't you I mean look at that monkey mm-hmm. you think you think that turned into you but that was never that was never part of evolutionary theory not even
0: Darwin's version and if human beings came from monkeys why are there still monkeys yeah right exactly
1: we, they turned into us gotcha right?
0: yeah um, When, of course the theory was always
1: that. They had a common ancestor exactly. that a long time ago there was something that had a little bit of what they have now and a little bit of what we have now. And over long periods of time, through lots of natural steps, it became the things that we have. And that's hard to believe. I understand why that's hard to believe. But the evidence is just overwhelming. Sure. It's uh, Genetics alone is sufficient to establish this beyond any any reasonable doubt. But even prior to the development of genetics, we had all sorts of independent lines of evidence to confirm this, many of which weren't even available to Darwin. And then on, on that evidence, we were able to make predictions about what we would expect to find in the genetics once we did develop genetics. And what do you know, those are exactly the sorts of things that we found when we looked into the genetics. So the genetics really just helped us to flesh out the so-called tree of life, in a great deal more detail than we could prior to it. But we didn't find anything to really surprise us. The basic story that we already had was confirmed, more or less, by genetics. So we could do a whole separate episode on specifics of the science, but just very basically evolutionary theory tells us that everything alive came from a single common ancestor and that that was a natural process. There are lots of different mechanisms that drove it, things that Darwin didn't foresee, uh, but it was a natural process. And that the raw material of that process is what's called genetic mutation. So when genes replicate themselves, sometimes they do it perfectly, sometimes they do not. When they do not, that's called a mutation. Most mutations are neutral, meaning they make no difference to the expressed characteristics in the offspring. Uh, sometimes they're negative, which means they make the offspring less fit, which means less able to reproduce themselves, and those tend to die out. And then sometimes those genetic mutations are adaptive, which means the the creature with that mutation does a little bit better at something than the other creatures that didn't have that mutation. And because it does it a little bit better, it's a little more successful than the other ones at passing on its genes. In other words, at mating, (laughs) reproducing itself. So from a purely scientific perspective, the point of evolution if we can use that phrase is simply to reproduce yourself successfully and sometimes genetic mutations help with that and when they do they continue in the species and then you extend that story to 4 billion years and you get enormous complexity and that's what we see around us and it's super well confirmed in the fossil record the idea that we don't have transitional fossils is just a myth go to any museum that has a natural history section and look at all the transitional fossils so Super well confirmed, no serious biologist doubts it, haven't for a hundred years. And if that's all true, <laughs> then the Christian is left in the awkward position of, of uh, wondering how this squares with their understanding of the biblical text.
0: Right. Which means we need some, we need some different science. Yeah, right.
1: That's, that's one way to go, I suppose. That's the way some have gone, you know? They set up their own quote-unquote creation science institutes. Many, they- yeah. Do their own version of science?
0: Yep, absolutely. Homeschool—that's what it's all about.
1: <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> Run away from culture. That's what I we look at Elliot and laugh because they're homeschooling their kids.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against; home. there are better and worse ways <laughs> to do homeschool. Absolutely, <laughs> Let's be clear absolutely. About that. Yes. Uh, so, so because of this overwhelming consensus and just the weight of the evidence for evolution, often you will hear scientists refer to evolution as a fact. And then sometimes the creationists will say, whoa, 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 it's a theory. And sometimes they'll say, it's just a theory, which unfortunately is not how scientists actually think about what either fact or theory means. So within a scientific perspective, a theory is simply a story that we tell that accounts for all of the data that we have. And we get data through observation and experiment. We literally go out and we dig in the dirt and we find these bones and then we use our microscopes and we look at genes. We do all this stuff, we gather all this data, and then we try to tell a story that makes sense of all the data. And there are always competing theories in science, what Darwin did was give a theory. And it's a theory that so here's the thing that a lot of a lot of creationists don't quite seem to get. When you get a theory in science, your response is not to go, oh finally we're done. (laughs) We've got our theory Uh, We've Mm -hmm. understood it. We can move on. Mm -hmm. That is the beginning of the process. You get a theory, and then your goal as a scientist is to show that that theory is false. So this is called falsification, and it's a huge part of doing science. You come up with an explanation of your data, and then you design experiments to prove that explanation wrong. Why would you want to prove your own explanation wrong? Well, because if you fail to prove it wrong... If a bunch of smart people in a lot of different contexts try really hard and they can't prove the theory wrong, then that gives you pretty good reason to think the theory is true. And people have been trying to prove evolution wrong for 150 years. And it is still universally assented to be the best account of what we have to the point that every biologist is willing to say, this is established, this is a fact. Uh, Now, technically speaking... The creationists are kind of right. You can never prove, in the the strict sense of prove, a scientific theory, but that's not the point of scientific theories. The point of them is to try to falsify them until you can't anymore, and then you say it's confirmed to the point that we might as well accept it as a fact. And that's where we've gotten to in evolution, and that's why a lot of scientists speak that way. They, They think it is just an objective truth about the world because we've tried for so long to prove that it's not and we have failed.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So that's the science. But the science is not really the main reason that creationists are creationists. Mm-hmm. If, if they weren't already committed to a particular reading of the Bible, there just wouldn't really be any reason to question the scientific consensus. So Randy, you're, you're a pastor, you know more about the Bible than me. What is it, that, what is it about the Bible that leads people to want to be creationists that 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 makes them want to reject this scientific consensus that i just described.
0: Hmm. Well, i mean that's a big question. I would think, you know, our our holy sacred text has a creation story in it and so we've just said, well, this is the answer. And not just, well, this is the answer for a vast majority of human existence, we took creation stories you know, ours being in the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Hebrew scriptures, as being it. This is the explanation. This is how the world came to be, and science. You know, in the last 150 years. 150 years sounds like a lot to us. That is a heartbeat in the history of the world, and so we've just, as humanity, have been trained to, th- to think that this is this is the this is the science book. This is how things worked. This is how exactly how it went, and. Therefore, it was incompatible to hear this word. That actually, there's a different process behind it, and that might not be literal. Um, we had no grid for that, and then all of a sudden, you have all of this data coming in from the scientific community and the Enlightenment. So the church gets really constricted and says, "Nope, we gotta we gotta come up with our our own science, and we've got to counter what they're telling us with what's really true." And so you get really defensive, and then you that's when you're it's really easy to form these little like weird beliefs about the scriptures. And that's when you start putting this inerrancy thing on the Bible to say everything it says is true, hundred percent as it, as it lies, you know, and that's when you start getting these, these ideas. And really what I would say has happened is people have turned the Bible into something that it is not. The Bible is not a signed text. It's just not. It's not a science book. That's not why God wrote it. That's not why people got their hands all over it. That's not how the... That's just. It's just not that at all. And so when we put that on the text, then all of a sudden we get into all sorts of troubles and we got eggs on our face. And we haven't done the good biblical reflection as well. That's what. That's what brought me to this point of saying, oh, that's not what this is talking about because the ancient people had a very different sort of understandings of what even the word creating something meant. Right? So if you talk about creation, when we think about creating something, we think about the course of making it like I'm, I'm creating this music or I'm creating this chair and all of the, the work that goes into it is part of the creation. And there it is, it's done. I've created it for an ancient near Eastern person to think about this. And I didn't come up with this, I'm not, I'm not smart enough, but I've relied on biblical historians and just historians of ancient Near East in general. When an ancient Near Eastern person would talk about something being created, they didn't talk about it as when it was materially created, that's when it existed. They would say actually, when, it's, when something becomes functional, that's when it's actually been created, when, when it's functional, when it's useful. And when you look back on Genesis 1, it makes perfect sense because when you get to Genesis 1, even in Genesis, the first two verses of Genesis, you find that there was a formless, chaotic world that already was in preexistence. existence it, it already existed as our sacred text jumps into it, right? And then it goes on and tells how the story isn't about God creating it out of nothing because it was already there. It goes on and tells about how God brought function and order to this functionless and orderless chaotic world that he already had created. Does that make sense?
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting that uh, when when you read Genesis with a creationist background, it just seems obviously to be the case that God is starting out of nothing, brand new, doing it in six days. Day obviously means 24 hours. What else could it mean? But when you try to set aside that framework and rec- and just really read the text, mm-hmm. read the first verse right. and ask yourself what it means. <laughs> now the earth <laughs> was not formless the and void. Yeah, yeah it's where yeah.
0: everything begins. And every time I say that, whether it's in a sermon or in conversation, people's eyes get wide. Like I never actually read that. Like Richard Rohr would say, it's there hiding in plain sight, right? So mm-hmm. it just, that there is enough to tell me that there's something to this idea that the ancient Near Eastern people groups saw creation as bringing function and order to something. And so that's what the story of Genesis 1, really particularly in Genesis 2 even, is about. The ancients would have seen and read Genesis 1 as both bringing function to to God's world, but also they would have seen it as a temple narrative, if you really get into it.
1: Yeah, what what does that mean? temple narrative?
0: I mean, this is not unique to the Hebrew scriptures. This was something that was common to the, in the ancient Near Eastern creation narratives. In that, j- that might be hard for some people to understand or to, to reckon with, but our creation narrative is similar to other religions, ancient Near Eastern religions, cre- creation narratives. Ours is unique and it's beautiful. The Imago Dei just blows my mind continually, but there are other ones. And the temple motif, when a When an ancient Near Eastern person would have read that God created the world in six days, right, and brought function and order to it, and then rested on the seventh, they would inherently, the scholars would say, and again, I get this from scholars, not myself, they would inherently say, oh, you're talking about a temple there. He rested on the seventh day. You're talking about God's creating a temple. Oh, and then you read Genesis 2, and God's putting humanity, this man and this woman, Adam, the human one, and Eve, in his temple in kind of a priestly role, mm-hmm. right? He, they're, they're there to, to steward it, to care for it, to to love it, to name things, to to really be priests in this temple, actually. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get this really big, beautiful, like, whoa, there's something way more to the creation narrative that I ever imagined. And this is where some, peop- some Christians get, get a little hot and bothered. When you look at the creation narrative as myth. That word myth trips everybody up, all the all the good Christians, and says, well, that means you're saying it's not literal, it's not true. And no, th- there's actually something to myth where there, there's something that's so big, so cosmic, so otherworldly, so mysterious, so unknowable and unimaginable, that myth is the only way you can communicate the deep truths of yeah. it. And that's what I think we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is, the deepest, some of the deepest truths you can ever imagine, the foundations of the cosmos. And so, of course, it's going to be spoken in a way that the ancient Near Eastern people understood and it would awaken their imagination and they would see their role as a priestly role in God's good creation that he's declared as good over and over and over again, that he's delighted himself in. Yeah. And that's the story that makes me fall in love again. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I'm starting to preach a little bit here. Right <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> So I noticed you said when you mentioned Adam and Eve, you didn't say Adam and Eve. You said something else. Can you, can you flesh out why you did that, why you, why you said it a little bit differently than most? Well,
0: because that's the Hebrew, right? I mean, the Adam we have is a nice white person's name for their children. <laughs> um, but in Hebrew, it's Adam, the human one. And so, again, to me, that's pointing that this is a story. That God is telling yeah. about humanity and His relationship with humanity. That He's put his, God's image—I won't say His, but God's Im, God's own image—in the human one, and mm-hmm. and and poured Himself into. And it's talking about God and humanity in bigger levels than just this yeah. guy named Adam.
1: I also, and I'm I'm not a Hebrew scholar here, so I could be wrong about this, but I remember reading that it also has kind of a connotation of being of the earth. Uh, So I saw a scholar one time say we could kind of translate Adam or Adam as earthling, something like that, Mm -hmm. uh, from, from the dust, kind of. And then Eve, you know, has the connotation of life. So I heard about a theology professor one time who, when he was teaching through Genesis with his students, he would start the class by reading an excerpt from like a science textbook, so they'd get a feel for that style. And then after he did that, he would read the beginning scroll from Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, such (laughs) and such and such. And then he would read Genesis one. And instead of Adam, he would say the man. Mm -hmm. And instead of Eve, he would say life. Hmm. And then he would ask his students, which does that seem more like to you? Hmm. (laughs) Is it more like the science text, mm-hmm. or is it more like the Star Wars text? Super interesting. And and any reasonable person presented it in that way, you know, would say it's a little more like the poetic mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I mean, you, you you almost have to be primed to not see it that way, right? Right. You have to be given a framework in which it seems scientific. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just it just makes sense to me. I mean, if we're talking, if we're using. Genesis as science the bummer is is that 2000 years ago they had really bad science right like i mean <laughs> like really bad they actually thought the atmosphere this firmament quote unquote was actual thick physical layer yeah. above the sky they thought that that's where water you know comes from they had all sorts of bad science they thought that like the your what you're thinking comes from your guts they thought, I mean, mm. they they had all sorts of crazy science because they were ancient people. And if we were married to the, the Bible as a science book, then science has got to stop there. There is no room for scientific development because yeah. that's... Which is funny thing.
1: because... This is a pre-scientific culture. So exactly. So if we want to
0: be really precise,
1: we'd have to say they didn't have bad science. They had no science because science is a methodology that wasn't invented until the 17th century. Sure. Uh, they just so had a really bad what, understanding. What they had was they had a metaphysics that wasn't very well fleshed out yeah. um, until at least the scholastic period. So, yeah, looking to that for our understanding of human origins or the cosmos or you know, nature itself. I mean, those concepts literally didn't exist when the Bible was written.
0: But looking at it as this beautiful story, this parable, like Jesus, here's another reason why this always shocks me, why Christians can't handle myth when we're talking about truth, is that same God who I believe created the universe and the cosmos and all that's in them and used this parable or this myth to tell us this beautiful story about how what was in God's heart and how he brought function and order to this chaotic world that he created, all that stuff. It makes sense to me that that same God who created the universe and told this beautiful story about God's relationship with humanity, that God then comes in Jesus Christ, in the man Jesus, in the incarnation. And how does he communicate the truths about the kingdom of God but in stories, in parables. He just tells parable after parable because to me, in my mind, God himself, Jesus is saying, you can't, you don't get it. Like if if I told you really in just brass tacks terms about my kingdom and what God's like, your mind would explode. I have to tell you in stories. It doesn't make it less true. The parable of the prodigal son is the truest story about who God is, even though it's a parable. Do you know what I mean? So for me, that it's not therefore a jump to say that same God, when he's talking about the creation and origin of the universe, is going to tell this beautiful story to draw us in. It's romantic, it's poetic, it's beautiful.
1: That's good. So so one way that, that some Christians today who accept evolution, some of them would call themselves evolutionary creationists. One way they like to describe this and get your thoughts on this is they say, It's like God gave us two books. He gave us the Bible. And the Bible had a specific purpose. The Bible's purpose was something like giving us all the information we need to be right with God interpersonally. But that's not the only book he gave us. He also gave us nature. They call it the book of nature.
0: That's very Franciscan of you.
1: Really? I don't know anything about that. <laughs> so well, yeah. Maybe that's where they drew it from. I don't know.
0: Franciscans call nature, the natural world, the second creation story, or the the second scriptures, Hmm. basically, the other scriptures, because you get to see who God is through his creation.
1: Interesting. I went to a Jesuit school, so I don't know anything about (laughs) Francis. They're great, too. They're great, too. (laughs) Uh, So that's cool. Maybe that's where they get this. I don't know. And then they'll say, the books need to be compatible. God gave us both of them. They shouldn't conflict. And we shouldn't put all the weight on one at the expense of the other. So if, if reason and nature tells us one thing about God's creation, and the Bible tells us a fundamentally different thing about God's creation, then God has contradicted himself, and that's a problem, Hmm. which might make us wonder if we're reading the books accurately. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yep. Yep. So I I think a lot of uh, creationists have found that helpful, a helpful way to frame things. The, The challenge, of course, is to see nature and science as equally authoritative or as comparable to The biblical text. That's going to be a struggle, I think, for a lot of creationists. Yeah. Yeah. But it helps to point out, as you have done, that you don't have to reduce your trust in the Bible. You don't have to think it's less authoritative. You just have to read it as it was intended to be read. Right. You have to read it in its historical context. Don't expect more from it than it was intended to give.
0: Yeah. I mean, the idea that the ancient people, the original audience, thought the same things that we think when they read Genesis 1 and 2 is absurd. It's just actually, actually absurd because of what we know and what they didn't. So.
1: so I think we can see then that what a lot of creationists, and and honestly a lot of atheists, it's funny that that they kind of agree about this, they, they claim that religion, specifically Christianity, is incompatible with evolution. The creationists and the atheists seem to be agreed on that point, or some of the atheists anyway, seem to be agreed on that point that if you believe science, you can't believe the Bible, and vice versa. Uh, So hopefully, we've begun to drive a wedge into that kind of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hopefully, we've got some reasons now that we can see maybe they're not necessarily incompatible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe if we read the Bible appropriately and carefully and in its context, we don't have to come up with a view that is fundamentally at odds with what science tells us. Absolutely. So... Maybe this, is because, uh, maybe this is unique to me because of my particular philosophical perspective. The type of philosophy I do is called epistemology, which means I write about knowledge. And a large part of that is how confident should we really be in the knowledge that we have? Something I think a lot about. Uh, and so a huge aspect of this debate, if you want to call it that, to me, that is often overlooked, is that most of the people having the debate and I'm confident in saying most because I spent a lot of time reading and watching this debate, most of the people in the debate do not know what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, the people on the creationist side defending particular views of the Bible are not biblical scholars most of the time. Absolutely. The people, the people, even on the atheist side, the people saying that the Bible and Christianity are false because evolution, they're almost always not evolutionary biologists. Mm-hmm. Serious evolutionary biologists, by and large, don't care about this. <laughs> and many, many of them are Christians, a minority, but mm-hmm. many of them are. And the, the ones who are like outspoken atheists are a tiny, tiny minority. And so a huge part of this for me is, well, what do the actual experts on both sides, the biblical interpretation experts and the evolutionary biology experts, what do they think about their domains of expertise? I'm not an expert. I'm not a biblical scholar. I've read them, and I kind of understand what they say. And I'm not a scientist. I've read them, and I kind of understand what they say. But at the end of the day, my responsibility, it seems to me, is just to believe what the experts say, where there is a consensus. And it turns out on this issue, there is a consensus on both sides. There's an overwhelming consensus on the scientific side, and there's a pretty strong scholarly consensus on the biblical side to support the sorts of things that you were just describing about appropriate ways and inappropriate ways to read the Bible. Uh, So it seems to me that as an individual, if I'm wondering what I should believe about this, the answer is just given to me. I should believe what the experts say. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. I should ask, are they compatible? And we're in the happy circumstance that they are compatible. (laughs) Uh, They might not have been. It might not have turned out that way. Mm -hmm. It might have turned out so that they would be incompatible and then I would be in a real bind as a Christian. That's just not what happened. Uh, the experts said one thing about nature, the experts said another thing about the Bible, and there's just no conflict. And it
0: works. Yep. Absolutely. That's encouraging. That's that's extremely encouraging, yeah.
2: Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Story Hill BKC for their support. Story Hill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Storyhill BKC is a full-service liquor store featuring growlers of tap, available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit storyhillbkc.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Storyhill BKC, and if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's storyhillbkc.com.
1: There is still some theological concerns, some theological worries that a lot of Christians might have. And these these are what I would consider legitimate worries. So they're not the result of reading the Bible poorly, for example, not necessarily anyway. If we accept that the evolutionary picture of nature is true, and we accept that the Bible tells us the truth about God and our relationship to God, there are still some outstanding theological concerns that we might have. Uh, so Randy, what do you think some of those concerns might be, some legitimate theological issues that Christians might have to wrestle a little bit with if we accept evolution as true.
0: Sure. I mean, some people probably see, hear what I had to say about the scriptures and about Genesis 1 and 2 being a, a story, a parable, myth even, a story about God bringing function in, in order to a functionless and orderless creation. Then the question is, what about Adam and Eve? Like we were talk, taught a lot about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are really important people to Christians. If they aren't real, then what does that mean, right? That's, that's a theological issue. But I don't think it's an unsurmountable issue. I, I, have a, I have space for believing or maybe making room for that, the reality that Adam and Eve were real people. I can do that. I really can. I don't, I don't believe it, but I think you can believe that and not be crazy. I think that's okay. I, I happen to believe that Adam and Eve were names and in part of the story that God used to tell the story of God and humanity. There's something about humanity that has this beautiful imprint of God in them. And God wants to have this, his story connected with humanity in a unique way. That's bigger than just two people for me. And that's fun. And then Adam and Eve become like, when you talk about Paul, okay, well, and if, Paul is talking about Jesus as the second Adam. So if Adam wasn't really real, then what does that mean about Jesus? You don't have to go there. Adam can be an archetype, right? Adam, Hmm. Adam, an archetype for humanity and Jesus coming as the second Adam. Romans 5 is one of my favorite passages of all the New Testament talking about jesus as the new adam and death came through adam now life has come to, through jesus paul is using adam in an archetypal way there in a way that's using adam symbolically for all humanity and then jesus right so i don't think that mm. i don't think that really creates any unsurmountable issues what are some other issues that kyle that you think it could bring up
1: Yeah, so speaking from sort of a more philosophical point of view, philosophers for a long time have been discussing the problem of evil, uh, and probably eventually we'll have a whole episode on this, but specifically the problem of natural evil is a really hairy aspect of that that issue, and that would be evil that's just part of nature, that's not caused by any person, so you can't explain it away with free will. So for example, an earthquake happens and kills 100,000 people in Haiti, and nobody chose to do anything that caused that earthquake to happen. That's just how nature works. And it causes all this needless, seemingly pointless suffering, right? And so if we accept the evolutionary picture of the world, we have to admit that that kind of thing has been happening for 4 billion years. That, uh, That there's been death and suffering for 4 billion years prior to humans even existing. And it just seems to magnify that problem. Uh, just makes makes it a little more difficult to understand than it was before why God would have chosen to do it in that way. So, so that's a sincere theological and philosophical problem that you could really wrestle with, and eventually I hope we'll have an episode about that. I'm not, certainly not going to answer it here. And then also related to that, really, is the idea that death somehow precedes God giving life to humans in Genesis.
0: Mm-hmm. Now going back to what you just said, Kyle, I mean, to me, again, there's a lot of answers in Genesis one and two, just in and Mm. of themselves. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Other translations call it chaotic, right? For me, I think the Bible is setting up the story of chaos and Functionless and purposeless and void, and the spirit of God is hovering over it all. and And you can that can be a beautiful metaphor for all of life in some ways. So I don't think we again have to divorce that natural evil. Like God is bringing order and beauty in life. To a disordered yeah. world that he created, and, and and it's going along this trajectory towards order, towards life, mm. towards beauty, and I think that's compatible yeah. both with the scriptures and with evolution.
1: So that that's that's a fair point. Uh, it, it won't solve the philosophical issue of evil itself, and like how we can square square that with a good God, but it, it's definitely helpful in pointing out that that problem exists in the text too. Mm-hmm. That the text itself is aware of that. And includes it in its in its framework. Yeah, it's so incredible. When we, we recognize the truth of evolution, we're not recognizing something that's not already in the text.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned, Kyle, this, you know, rebut that creationists say that death can't lead to life. That that's not godly, that's not in scriptures, if death, you know, and that's what evolution does. Again, for me, that is not a problem scripturally. Because I follow a God who is perfectly and fully revealed in the man Jesus Christ, who accomplished salvation and redemption for all of humanity through death. And that death brought life. And this is this is a, a motif you see throughout the scriptures, not just in Jesus, but all over the place that death comes and life comes from it. Death comes and life yeah. comes from it. This is what God does. He turns, he turn, takes ashes and he makes them beautiful. This is, this is the, one of the most beautiful common themes through all of the scriptures that actually, yes, life comes from death. Jesus, the most, possibly the most common thing that he said while he was on earth in the gospels is if you want to live, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to die to yourself in all the ways. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to crucif- be willing to crucify yourself and then pick up your cross and follow me. So for me, I just say, have you not read the Bible? Like, don't you, don't you see this theme that Jesus preached, that Jesus lived and died and then rose again, that, that Paul talked about death into life, death and resurrection. That's just the way of God. That's the way that God has, to me, it's just like the way God has set things up life through death. Yeah.
1: And then I guess, lastly, uh, an issue that comes to mind, and I've I kind of wrestled with this myself when I was making the transition from a kind of creationist to accepting evolution. I wondered for a while if it would make God seem more distant or uninvolved or something Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. Because, you know, in Genesis you have, he he forms humans out of the dust of the earth, and then he forms Eve out of the rib of Adam, and it seems very intimate. Uh, And then he walks with them in the garden, and that seems very intimate. And taking this billion-year-long view of humans developing through a natural process, can seem distant. It, it can seem more like deism almost than than Christianity. What, what do you think about that?
0: I hear you, um, and I hear that. But, again, Genesis 1 and 2 are beautiful and also authoritative texts for me. And So I look at Genesis 1 and 2, and it tells me that if science is telling me and it's not dissonant with the scriptures that evolution is a cor- is, is a thing that is real and has happened and we can back that up then genesis 1 and 2 is telling me god was intimately involved in that whole 4 billion years god was god was breathing his creative imagination into these molecules s- separating and and at atomic things going on and in the marriage of quant- you know all of these things that are happening that the scientists can tell us about Genesis 1 and 2 is telling me that that was an act of love that God was right in it the whole time that that was very intentional very celebratory very very fun for God that's what i hear in Genesis 1 and 2 and i have to take that and say okay that's that's got to be the way that God created the world through that evolutionary process with a lot of fun a lot of joy a lot of celebration a lot of a lot of intentionality and intimately involved. And then when I think of the story of human beings, that like you referenced, walking with Adam and Eve in the garden and talking and this beautiful connectedness and talking about the trees. To me, that's just the story that God has been enamored with human beings since the very beginning. And, and it's a story of God and his people, and he has this dream in his heart. And again, it doesn't have to make it more distant or less real. It's actually just talking about how God is saying, I've been with you guiding this thing the whole time, pouring my intention, pouring myself, pouring my life. It just might not look like exactly the way you thought it did, right? And that's okay. For me, that's, that, that works for me. So, Kyle, I keep coming back to the stacks of books that you had. I've got to believe that among those stacks, along the course of time, you came across a couple of books that you think would be helpful for our amazing listeners to dig into.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm going to keep it real brief. Uh, I don't expect everybody to dive in in the way that I did. So, the book... That I normally recommend to people who want a kind of introduction to the scientific evidence for evolution itself as a theory, and this might be a surprise to some of our listeners, but the book that I recommend is called The Greatest Show on Earth. It's by Richard Dawkins. That's funny. If you know anything about Richard Dawkins, you know that he is a hostile atheist. He he has no time for Christians. He thinks we're all irrational or immoral or uh, dumb or whatever. (laughs) Um, But... He is a talented biologist, and he's a talented writer. Uh, And when he's writing about biology, he's very compelling. Now, you will have to put up with some snark (laughs) in this book. He cannot resist taking the occasional jab at Christians. But if you want a compellingly written and really vividly imagined story of the history of evolution, this is an excellent text. It, It brings together all the different strands of evidence that we have and presents them in a, in a way that the average person can really get into. So that's, so that's what I recommend on the science side, uh, knowing that you'll have to take some of it with a grain of salt. Uh, on the, the theology or biblical side, there's a book called The Evolution of Adam by Peter Inns. I love Peter Inns. Uh, he's Innes. an Old Testament scholar. Yep, also one of the creators of the Bible for Normal People podcast, which we both love. Absolutely. And this is a, this is a great book. It's, it's very good at explaining... The whole issue with Adam, for sure, and how we can deal with that theologically, but also primarily at setting up the ancient Near Eastern context that you were describing earlier on, and how the Bible fits into that whole historical context. Very excellent. But probably the place that I would recommend a, a listener who is still still hung up on some of the the creationist stuff, still want still isn't willing to quite let go of some of the interpretations of the Bible that they've been given by their tradition. The place I think they should start. Is a website, uh, so you don't have to commit to a whole book. Just go to this website, biologos.org. That is b-i-o-l-o-g-o-s.org. And we'll have that in the there show are notes. So many, yeah. We'll put all of this in the show notes. So many resources on that website. Now, these are this is run by people who call themselves evolutionary creationists, which is not a label I would use, but they more or less overlap with my view. And there are many serious scientists and several serious biblical scholars, and even a philosopher. Uh, on their staff. And all of their articles are good. They have lots of video resources. They really, really make it accessible. And they try to be super friendly, super uh, irenic, which means peace building. Uh, They're really friendly to all the other sides of the debate. So I would recommend starting there.
0: I love BioLogos. Really, really good. Um, And my recommended reading would be two books by the same guy, John Walton. John Walton is basically widely seen throughout evangelicalism in Christianity, really, as the, I would say, the foremost scholar uh, on Genesis. He's brilliant. He's historian. He's a biblical scholar. And he wrote two books, one called The Lost World of Genesis 1. And that is just brilliant it's so so good and the second book is the lost world of Adam and Eve and in those two books he just goes into how an ancient person would have read this and how how an ancient person would have processed this and what did certain terms mean in the ancient world and the, it's it's mind blowing about how how myopic we are when we read the bible when we when we approach the scriptures we do it completely from our perspective and that's not the way these this was written so john walton he's just a rock star i love him i'd love to have him on the podcast one day but the lost world of genesis 1 and the lost world of adam and eve so as we began this episode realizing that there's 278 million search results for creation and evolution hopefully this just starts a journey or continues a journey or is a, a, a little point in your journey thinking through this for yourself Pondering, having questions with friends. This is sacred stuff that we're talking about, that we're thinking about, that we're processing through in prayer. So as you do that, dear listeners, we bless you.
2: Thanks for spending this time with us. We really hope that you're enjoying these conversations as much as we are. And if you are, help us get the word out. Before you close your podcast app, leave a rating or a review. That helps new listeners find us, maybe for the first time. If you'd like to share the episode you just heard with a friend or a family member, you can find those links on our social media pages. You can also find us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash philosopher And that's going to work well for you, whether you're a kind enough person to financially support us out of the goodness of your heart, or if you're just looking for merch or the chance for a private tasting. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar.